The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. Well, this morning we start Mark chapter 8. We are halfway there. This morning we're going to go from verse 1 all the way to verse 21. We got some work to do. If you would join me there, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Then he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into a boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many broken, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? 
What does it mean to believe? What is faith? What does it take to believe? What is it that you have to believe in? These are questions that human beings have wrestled with for millennia. These are the questions that are at the center of these three stories we see in Mark chapter 8 today. First, a story that should sound and seem familiar, right? Jesus feeding a great multitude with bread and fish. Mark says, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Jesus teaching this crowd now for three days. They've been there. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. Some of them have come from far away. And his disciples ask a ridiculous question. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? What in the world? Are, are these 12 guys just super dull? Well, I would say that they are spiritually dull. That they just don't get it. And that their understanding of faith their understanding of what Jesus is doing and who Jesus is doing it for is very limited. You see, there's, there's one big distinction between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And that distinction is the makeup of the people present when Jesus works these miracles. Earlier, when Jesus feeds 5,000 men, which is probably more like 20,000 people, with just a boy's lunch, the crowd that is gathered there that day was predominantly Jewish. Jesus was in a Jewish area, predominantly filled with Jews. And historically, Jews are God's chosen people. They are the ones that God has seen fit to provide for and has seen fit to feed. If you remember or were here as we worked through those verses, this feeding of the 5,000 in a desolate place, in a desert area, was, was analogous to, corresponding to, fulfillment of Jesus' provision to Israel as they wandered in the wilderness 
as they've left uh, slavery and bondage in Egypt and they traveled towards the promised land. God provided for them manna. And here Jesus provides for them in the wilderness bread. That was the first feeding. Predominantly Jews, the ones that God feeds. But now Jesus is in a predominantly Gentile area. And the 4,000 people gathered here to hear Jesus teach for three days were predominantly Gentile. These are the people that God does not feed. Remember what Jesus said in his interaction with the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7 in this Introduces a shift in the narrative, a shift in the story, a shift in Jesus' ministry. In Mark 7, verses 27 and 28, the Syrophoenician woman comes. She has a daughter who has a demon. And Jesus' response to her, he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And if you were with us, you remember as we worked through that, what Jesus is saying here, the children, that is God's people, the Jews. And it's not right to take what was meant for them and to feed it to those who aren't Jews. And she answered, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What faith, even the crumbs from your table are enough to satisfy And what does Jesus do? Jesus heals her daughter. So I believe all of that informs the disciples' question. It's it's not so much a question of could Jesus feed them, but a question of would Jesus feed them? What do we learn about faith, about real faith, about what it means to believe? We learn that real faith understands that we have all fallen short and that Christ can and will save anyone, Jew or Gentile. The disciples still do not understand that Jesus is the bread of life for anyone that believes in him, both for the Jew and for the Gentile, and that in him there is enough to satisfy all that come to him. What does Mark tell us? Mark tells us that Jesus has compassion over these people. Compassion for them. Much in the same way he had compassion over the Jews who were like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion over the Gentiles who now are in great need. Jesus is the compassionate Savior who is available for all peoples. For all peoples. And that in him there is no distinction. It's interesting 
how many baskets Jesus collects in the first feeding and here in the, the second feeding. So how many baskets do they collect in this one? In verse 4, his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate, and they were all satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Now, there seems to be something about the number here. I don't want to read too much into it, and I'm not one of these guys that, that gets into n- numerology. Um, but there seems to be something about the number. And the reason why I believe that there's something about the number is not just because, oh, it wouldn't it be cool if there was something about the number, but because Jesus asks about the number, Right? He asks them, how many baskets did you take up? Took up seven. How many the first time? We took up 12. Why would Jesus ask how many baskets they took up if there wasn't some sort of meaning behind the number of baskets they took up? So what is it that these numbers mean and what is it that they represent? Well, the first time there was a feeding of Jewish people, and they collected 12 baskets, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. That Jesus is the promised Messiah for all the Jewish people. This time, Jesus takes up seven baskets. We understand This number seven to represent a fullness or a completion. Seven days of creation. Everything is created in full. Everything is complete. And so now Jesus takes up seven baskets as if to say, don't you see that there's enough of me to fill the whole world to fullness and completion? That he is, Christ is, more than sufficient for the whole world. This is, you know it, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What do we see about faith In this first interaction, we see that faith is available to all, Jew or Gentile. This doesn't seem radical to us because we, for the most part, are Gentiles. And this is what we've been raised up in. But this was radical in Jesus' day. That Jesus would do for a Gentile the same thing that he would do for a Jew. That this faith is available for all, but it only applies to those who believe in him. While the all-sufficient grace of Jesus 
as our great shepherd is available, is sufficient for all people. It only applies to those who believe in him. You must believe in him. Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9, indeed. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. Faith where? Faith in what? Faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What does it take to receive grace from God, acceptance from God? It takes faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I, I live, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Saving faith, real saving faith is in Jesus Christ. Real saving faith, genuine saving faith is not in a church. It's not in a feeling. It's not in an ideology. It's not in what you think is right. It's not even in what you want to be right. It's not in what sounds right or feels right. But it's in a real person who really lived and who is really revealed to us through his word. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And you must believe that you need him and that he is available to you, Jew or Gentile. The disciples, even though they had seen amazing things, still didn't get it. Their understanding of who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing, their faith was still limited. How can these, how can these people, these Gentiles, how can they be fed? They didn't see that standing before them is the bread of life that satisfies every person that comes to him. They still didn't get it. I don't know about you, but that, that truth terrifies me. How they didn't get it. How they could miss it. What does that tell us? That tells us that hanging around Jesus isn't the same as having faith in Jesus. Coming to church and singing the songs is not the same as having faith in Jesus. Having Christian parents who bring you here is not the same as having faith in Jesus. It has to be 
personal. It has to be real. It has to be for you. An understanding of your need for a savior and the great reality that Jesus is available to every person who comes to him in faith. Now, you may hear me say that and you may be thinking to yourself, if only I could know that that was true. Because that all sounds good, Jason, but we're reading a book that's thousands of years old about a guy who lived thousands of years ago that not a single one of us has ever seen. So if I had some real, tangible evidence, I could believe. In other words, if there was a sign, I would believe. Well, if you feel that way, You are not the first. Verse 10, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they seek a sign from heaven. So what is this? Well, a sign is public proof that Jesus is who Jesus says that he is. They want a sign. Show it. Prove it. Now, My question would be, what more could they possibly want? Look at all the things that Jesus has already done. Countless miracles witnessed by countless numbers of people. But you see, they didn't ask in a hopes that Jesus would give them a sign but in the hopes that he wouldn't. You see, what we learn is that asking for a sign from God is not an exercise in faith. It's an exercise in disbelief. It's an exercise in unbelief. And if your attitude towards God, the things of God, and Jesus is, if only you would give me a sign, I would believe. That may sound like an exercise of faith, but it is an exercise of unbelief. You see, these Pharisees, they did not want to believe. Their hearts were hardened. Jesus had already done enough. The same is true for you. Jesus has already done enough. What's Jesus' response to them? He just sighs deeply in his spirit and he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. 
It's interesting the way that Jesus narrows in on this, this generation of, of people. And it is, I believe, a direct reference back to Deuteronomy 32 and 33, where you see a whole generation of Jews perish in the wilderness, die in the wilderness, and never enter into the promised land. Why? Because of their lack of faith. Even though God did remarkable, amazing, clear, and compelling acts, they still didn't believe. That sounds crazy. That sounds crazy to me. I mean, wouldn't you think if you were a Jew in, in bondage in Israel and you witnessed all of these miraculous uh, plagues that Jesus brought, you would believe? Or when you got to the, to the edge of, of a sea and there's an army coming down on you and you think, we, you just brought us here to die and then all of a sudden, you go across, don't you think you would believe? Or if you wake up in the morning and there's a giant tornado cloud leading you where you're supposed to go and at night a giant fire tornado leading you don't you think you would believe or if you just woke up and there was bread on the ground don't you think you would believe or if God met the man you looked to Moses and he came down glowing like a light bulb? Don't you think you would believe? I mean, over and over and over, God does amazing things, signs, proof that he is who he is. And yet, they don't believe. They don't believe. This is Psalm 95. I want to read the whole thing. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa, in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who will go astray in their heart, for they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. You see the, the parallel between Israel and the wilderness witnessing the great mighty acts of God, the grace of God before their 
eyes, yet still refusing to believe. And the Pharisees who had seen all that Jesus had done, yet still refused to believe. Both demanding signs. Both perishing because of it. You see, Jesus gives himself to those who see their need, but he rejects those who don't. And if the countless miracles Jesus had performed had not convinced them, then absolutely nothing would. And the parallel account found in Matthew, Jesus adds something. Matthew 16, verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. What is this sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That is the only sign that is necessary. That's the only sign that counts. He has done all he needed to do. You just have to believe. And if you keep waiting for more, you will wait your way into an eternity apart from him. There is nothing more that he needs to do. You need to believe. Hebrews 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You hear and you believe, and then you enter his rest. Hebrews 3, 15 through 19. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. Faith is accepting, not testing. But some will say, I need more than that, Jason. I can't just have faith I need to be able to understand first. Right? That might work for you, just believing, but that doesn't work for me. I need to understand before I believe. Well, the last story this morning speaks to that. 
that faith comes before understanding, not understanding before faith. And he left them and he got into the boat and he went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So Jesus feeds 4,000 people, takes his dumb disciples and moves on. (laughs) And he's confronted with Pharisees who want to argue with him, who want to put him to the test. He sighs, speaks harshly to him, gets in his boat with his dumb disciples and starts heading across the lake. And he's thinking about this interaction with the disciples while his dumb disciples only had one loaf to eat. And so Jesus begins to teach them to warn them, to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Beware of the leaven, Jesus says. This is not language that we necessarily use, but it's language that's used throughout the scriptures. And leaven is always seen as as sinful influence. Leaven, yeast, when it gets into bread, it works its way throughout the entire loaf. A little bit of leaven spoils the whole loaf, right? It's this sinful, corrupting influence. That's what leaven represents. And so Jesus teaching his disciples, you need to beware of the sinful, corrupting influence of the Pharisees and of Herod. So what is the sinful, corrupting influence of the Pharisees and of Herod? It is unbelief. They don't believe. It's a works-based righteousness that denies Christ and the need for his grace. It's a system of faith that depends, listen to me, that depends on what you know. But real faith isn't just regurgitating doctrines or certain scriptures. This is important for a church like ours. Real faith isn't just knowing things. The Pharisees knew the word of God. The Pharisees knew the scriptures, yet they didn't believe. They didn't have faith. They misunderstood the scriptures. They misunderstood what God was saying. And they had built for themselves a systems of work to earn God's forgiveness. So Jesus says, beware of that. The disciples still didn't get it. 
They did not understand because they still don't have faith. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. We got one loaf, guys. There's 13 of us, and we got one loaf. It's not enough. How are we going to eat? What a bunch of idiots. And Jesus, aware of this, responds to them in about the most sternful manner you will see Jesus respond to anybody. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Do you not remember? Of course they remember. They prove that they remember. Right? Well, how many loaves? How many baskets? They remember. They have seen. But they don't have an understanding that has been joined by faith. Faith has not come before understanding. Why are you still worried about what you're going to eat? Do you not yet see who I really am? That's Jesus' questions. Now they had seen, but they had not really seen. They understood but not yet fully understood. Their seeing and their understanding had not yet been joined with their faith. Because hanging around Jesus isn't saving faith. Saving faith is seeing Jesus for who he is. Believing that. Letting faith give way to an understanding that is life-changing. The disciples haven't changed. They're still worried about their next meal. Do you have the spiritual insight? Yes, to know, but also to live. Yes, you may know it, but do you live it? Do you have the spiritual insight to apply the things of God to your life through faith? These disciples hadn't changed. Still worried about food. It hadn't set deep into them so that their lives would be changed. Not yet. It would, but it hadn't yet. And we are real close to seeing it take root in the heart of one of them. You read this ridiculous interaction between Jesus' disciples and Jesus, 
it leaves me asking this question, does faith in Jesus impact the way you live? Are you more different today than you were a year ago or five years ago? It's not just do you know more. It's not the understanding that Jesus is asking them, do they have? It's not just an understanding of, do you believe that I can take that one loaf and turn it into a million? It's do you believe that I am willing to supply every one of your needs? And has your life been changed? Faith comes before understanding. You can know and not know. You can see and not see. When you really know and when you really see with eyes and hearts of faith, you are changed. That's why Jesus asks them, are your hearts hardened? 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. That is an understanding that comes after faith. And then, which is at work in you believers that works to change us. It works in us. Faith works in us so that it can work out of us. James 2, 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Three stories, one thread, unbelief. Will he do it? Will he feed these Gentiles? Unbelief. Can he do it? Give us a sign. Unbelief. And will I believe it in a way that changes me? Unbelief. All three warnings of our unbelief. And all three examples of real faith. To believe that Jesus can save anyone. That believe that Jesus will save anyone. And to trust in him in a way that's not just cognitive understanding of things but to trust him in a way where our faith in who he is and what he's done for us on the cross is joined with an understanding that changes the way that we live. Three stories. Three warnings. Do you believe? Do you understand? Or has your hearts been hardened? Father, would you help us to be people of faith? 
We need you. We need your gospel. We need your word. We need your spirit to work in us, to produce in us faith so that our faith would be joined with understanding so that we could really see and perceive, that we could really hear and understand, that our hearts wouldn't be hardened, that we wouldn't be kept in our unbelief. But Jesus, that we would see you for who you are. We, we have no need to demand another sign. You've done all that you need to do to prove all that you are. You have been raised from the dead. So would you help us in our faith in you and you alone, not in a church, not in a feeling, not in an ideology, not in what we think is right, not in what we want to be right, not in what we feel should be right or what sounds right, but faith, real, living, life-changing faith in you and you alone. Would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.